the epic words of one of my least favorite movies, marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. And what's fascinating about, and maybe unique about the marriage story that we're going to look at today, is that it's, I would assume, one unlike anything you've ever seen before. Jacob has left his homeland, running away from the the murderous rage of his brother Esau, and at the same time looking for a wife among his extended family. Our text last Sunday from Genesis 28, Jacob was, was laying in the wilderness all alone, his head on a rock, when God appeared to him in a dream and reaffirmed his promise to make Jacob's descendants into a great nation through whom the entire world would be blessed. Jacob builds an altar and worships the Lord and then continues on his journey. And in our text for today, he arrives at his destination. Now keep in mind, this was about a 500 plus mile journey and every indication is that Jacob did it on foot. And so from the time that Jacob had his dream until he arrives at his destination, it was at least a month, if not longer. The events of our text today are really centered around Jacob's marriage, or to be more precise, marriage is. From Genesis chapter 29, starting in verse 1. This is God's word to us. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, my brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, is he well? Yes, he is, they said, and here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It's not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban and Laban's sheep, He went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah, so she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home, and there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, You are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years, in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. 
Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. Heavenly Father, as the psalmist declares, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as we reflect on and consider this unique passage of scripture today, one of the things you might have recognized is that there's nothing particularly spiritual about this text, at least on the surface. It doesn't mention God. There's no prayer or worship like we've seen in previous week's passages. But there is plenty going on here that shows us how God is at work in the situation. Just in case, as you've been following along, if you thought that the drama surrounding this chosen family wasn't enough already, everything again ramps up a little more in our text for today. So as we think about these words from Genesis 29, I'm going to handle it in three parts. We're going to talk about the love story, and then the deception, and then finally the gospel. So first, let's talk about the love story. Verses 1 through 8 set up the scene as Jacob arrives at Haran and finds out from some shepherds gathered around the well that Laban, his uncle, and his family are doing well. Now, I mentioned several weeks ago, and if you haven't been following along with us and you're a little caught off guard by the love story between cousins. I mentioned several weeks ago, you can go back and listen to previous sermons where I address that, but I remind us not to get too judgy because most of us, if we look back in our family trees, would find some similar stories along the journey. But nonetheless, that's the reality of what we find in our text for today. It was very common in the ancient world. Now, the text doesn't confirm for us But most people assume that this well that Jacob arrives at is likely the same well that Abraham's servant arrived at when he traveled to Haran to find a wife for Jacob's father, Isaac. Again, we don't don't know that, but the similarities are certainly there, and it seems like it's probably the case. And as Jacob is conversing with the shepherds about his extended family, they point out that Rachel, Laban's daughter, is coming with the sheep to water her sheep. In verse 3, we learn that there was a large stone that covered the mouth of the well. Most of you know that here at Living Word, we have a history with water wells. Our extended family of churches, the Church of Lutheran Brethren, uh, has a ministry in Chad, Africa called Living Waters. And 
Living Word, as a church family, have paid for a number of water wells providing clean drinking water to communities in Chad. Without a cover, these wells can easily become contaminated. And so the stone that's mentioned a number of times, interestingly, in our text, is an important piece of protecting that clean water source. Verse 8 tells us that the shepherds were just sort of hanging out there at the well, and they tell Jacob that they couldn't roll the stone away and water their sheep until all the flocks had gathered. We don't know the why behind this. Some have assumed that the rock was heavy enough that it took all the men when they were there, all the local shepherds working together to move it away. Others have said it was just part of their agreement, part of the local custom that they had agreed together that they would wait until all the shepherds with their flocks were there. Whatever the reason, Jacob doesn't care. In verse 10, it tells us that when he sees Rachel, he rolls the stone away and waters her sheep. Remember that his brother Esau, Jacob's brother Esau, was the strong, strapping outdoorsman. And Jacob was the smooth-skinned mama's boy who preferred cooking to hunting. But it's amazing what a beautiful woman can do, right? Jacob gets a surge of testosterone and runs over and manhandles the rock off of the well. And then he goes over and he kisses Rachel and he begins to weep. And you can imagine sort of what's going through her mind at this time. Uh, And it's interesting that only after he kisses her and starts bawling, he tells her who he is. Now, this greeting might seem a little strange in our culture, but it was really a common greeting in Jacob and Rachel's day uh, to greet with a kiss. Of course, we see this continue into the New Testament, where we see a number of times mentioned instructions to greet one another with a kiss. It was the handshake of the day or the hug of the day. And it remains common in many parts of the world uh, to this day. After their greeting and introduction, Rachel goes to her father Laban, and Laban then hurries out to greet Jacob. Now Jacob stays with the family for a month, and he's helping out with the work. And finally, Laban asks him what their working relationship should be. He says, tell me what your wages should be. And that's when Jacob makes his move, right? Verse 18, Jacob was in love with Rachel. And said, I will work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban agrees to the agreement, and his time of service begins. Now again, this might seem strange to us, because we have, uh, at least in this part of the world, ended the practice of arranged marriages. Uh, But this was very common in the ancient world, remains so in many cultures today. Uh, A man would have to pay a price to the family for the opportunity to marry the daughter. Many cultures have had in the past this arrangement of either a bride price or we might hear the word dowry in some cultures. The bride price is the payment made from the groom or his family to the bride or her family. The dowry is typically more of a transfer of wealth from the bride's family to the groom and his family. A dowry going to the groom's family was often more common when in cultures when the tradition was for the groom and his new wife to set up their family and their household among the bride's family. And a bride price would have been much more common when the tradition was for the bride to leave her family and move to the family home of the groom. As times and cultures change, there are any number of different traditions. And actually, we see throughout the Old Testament even some variation in this tradition as time goes on. 
But for Jacob's situation, it was expected and he understood that there would be a payment made. And he brings this up to Laban. He offers seven years of labor and Laban agrees. Jacob loves Rachel and he's willing to do anything that's required for her to become his wife. We see the extent of Jacob's love in verse 20. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. He's quite the romantic, isn't he? There's another aspect of this whole story that's worth thinking about a little bit, and that's the question of what were Rachel's thoughts on this whole thing. To my knowledge, the scriptures never speak directly to whether Jacob's deep love for Rachel was returned, but I I think as as we see the story play out, we can assume that at least eventually it was. The only indicator that might be helpful for us is in chapter 31, in a couple of weeks we'll mention this, when the sisters complained that their father was treating them like animals or like commodities, things to be bought and sold. Both Leah and Rachel are a little upset about that, rightfully so. Nonetheless, Jacob serves his seven-year commitment. And in verse 21, he goes to Laban, and what he says is a little crude, or at least as it's translated into English, it comes across a little crude. He says, give me my wife, my time is completed, and I want to make love to her. Whether he's actually being that crude, or he's just being forthright about the requirement to complete this marriage arrangement by consummating the marriage, The story is, I think we would all agree, filled with irony at this point. This is sort of the turning point in the story. And it brings us to the second part of the story, where we move from the love story into the deception. When we know the full story of Jacob's life and past, this part of the account can be seen as nothing other than poetic justice. We're introduced to Rachel's older sister, Leah, Now, we don't know much about these two sisters, at least at this point in the story, other than the scriptures tell us that Leah is described as having weak eyes, and Rachel is described as having a lovely figure. The question is, what does it mean to have weak eyes? And quite simply, we don't know. We don't know for sure. There have been many attempts. Many people have tried to nail down what this imagery means, and we just don't know. Many believe that it it means exactly what it says, that she had poor vision. Others have said that she perhaps had what we call today a lazy eye or some some type of deformity. Others have said that it was just a metaphor, meaning that she was ugly. Whatever the case, she will play a central role in the story. Next week, we'll hear exactly how central her role is to this story, but for now, she's central to her father's plan to deceive Jacob. And this is where the story, I think, gets fascinating. The deceiver, Jacob the deceiver, is deceived in almost exactly the same way that he deceived his own father. What do I mean? If you remember back to Genesis 27, Jacob dresses in his brother's clothes, puts goat skin on his smooth hands and neck, and pretends to be Esau, in order to deceive his father out of the blessing that was intended for the firstborn. Verse 22 says, So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, 
He took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And then verse 25, which I think is sort of the classic verse of this text. When morning came, there was Leah. Jacob goes in to see blind Isaac, pretending to be the firstborn. And on his wedding night, Leah, the firstborn of the sisters, goes into the tent and consummates the marriage, pretending to be her sister. Now, you might be wondering how this could happen, and that's a good question. It's important to understand a few aspects, historically and culturally, that might help us a little bit here. First of all, there was no electricity, right? So after dark, there was no light in the dwellings unless they had a lamp or a candle lit. So that might help us a little bit. Another aspect of this is the tradition. And in this culture, as it remains today in that part of the world, it would have been customary for the bride to wear a veil. A veil that's a little different than veils that we see in our culture today. Veils that would have covered much of the face. So it's less common in American wedding tradition today. Uh, but elsewhere in the world, many of the veils cover almost entirely the, the entirety of the face. And then third, perhaps maybe the most influential factor that led to Laban's deceit being successful was the feast that they were celebrating. The word that's translated into English as feast loses a little bit in translation because it actually implies central to that word is sort of the idea of much wine being served. The assumption was that wine would be a central part, and it was in that culture, a central part of every feast and especially marriage celebrations. We see this, of course, in the New Testament. In John chapter 2, when Jesus saves the day for the wedding host who had sort of underestimated the amount of wine that he needed, the amount of wine that would be consumed during the wedding celebration. And so our text doesn't explicitly say that drunkenness was a factor, but it's, it's certainly implied even in the word choice that's used here in Hebrew, as well as the cultural understanding that there would have been much wine consumed in this celebration. And so it's likely that Jacob's senses and perceptiveness were a little bit dulled by the wedding party. And of course, there, there's an element of this that is God's discipline, Right? God is the author of the story. He chose to weave the events of the story together in this manner that, that the one who manipulated and deceived both his brother and his father was now humiliatingly deceived by his father-in-law. Legally bound now to Leah, he confronts Laban in verse 25. He says, what is this that you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? And then he, I feel like he had to sense the irony when he said this next phrase, why have you deceived me? Laban gives an interesting answer. He says it's, it's not our custom here for the younger daughter to be given in marriage before the older one. And that may or may not have been true. We, we don't necessarily assume that Laban's telling the truth here. And knowing how great Jacob's love for Rachel is, the master deceiver says, fine, finish Leah's bridal week, and then you can have Rachel as well as long as you serve me for another seven years. We see some more of the cultural elements involved here. Like many cultures, it was customary to have a week-long marriage celebration. 
And so Jacob finishes his week with Leah, and then he marries Rachel as well and agrees to serve for another seven years. As I've mentioned in the past, this is not God's plan for marriage. This was not God's design. But why would we expect anything different from this dysfunctional family? Just in case you think things are going to get better, they don't. The drama continues. It intensifies in the chapters ahead. Okay, we've seen the love story. We've seen the deception. And now I want you to see the gospel. You might be rightly asking, is there actually any gospel? Uh, Is there any good news in this passage? And on first glance, there might not be any. But as you've come to expect, Jesus is right here in the text, in the passage of our scripture today. So allow me to share two ways that this passage points us to Jesus. And, And the first one is in the prevalence of the firstborn imagery. We're reintroduced again. We've dealt with this a number of times, and it's, it's a theme that keeps resurfacing, right? The imagery of the firstborn. When we read this through gospel eyes, we always think of Jesus when we encounter this theme. Why? Because scripture tells us to. Jesus is the firstborn. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Paul goes on to say he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Or Revelation chapter 1 says that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. So while the mentioning of the firstborn here isn't explicitly about Jesus, it's yet another resurfacing of this continual theme throughout the Old Testament and especially here in Genesis. It's a thread in the story and when we tug on that firstborn thread, it always leads us right to Jesus. And now let me share the second and maybe more obvious way that our text today is clearly about Jesus. And that's regarding the price that the groom will pay for his bride. Think of all that Jacob gave up for Rachel. Fourteen years is a long time. Now, I could be mean today and ask all of you men to raise your hands if you would commit to 14 years of manual labor in return for your wife. I don't want to cause any problems today, so I won't do that. And men, just so you know, when your wife asks you on the way home today, the correct answer is, I would even go to the cross for you. It's the right answer. Don't say I've never helped. But of course, we aren't here to worship Jacob today. We're here to worship the the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the true and better Jacob. Like Jacob, Jesus would go to a well and would offer water. But rather than just satisfying for a day, Jesus would say, whoever drinks of the water that I would give him will never thirst again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And like Jacob... Jesus would roll away a stone, conquering death for his bride, offering true and everlasting life for all who would believe. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul makes a comparison between the marriage of a husband and wife and Christ's love for his bride, the church. Paul calls it a profound mystery. Listen to what he says in verse 25. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Jacob offered himself, gave himself up to Laban for seven years and seven years more for the object of his love. And the better Jacob, the better groom, offered up his life for you and for me and for all who would believe. He, he gave it all. He went to the cross. And so our text today is not just biblical history. It is that. But it's not only biblical history. It's not just a, a unique story about a bizarre and dysfunctional family. It doesn't just take us one step closer to God's redemptive plan, sort of coming to its apex. This account actually gives us Jesus, who gave himself for his bride, who rolled the stone away and offered living water for all who will receive. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your plan of salvation, your grand and good plan to rescue the world from sin, death, and the evil one. And we thank you today. We, we just sort of have to laugh at the fact that you did it through this family. We're grateful for this passage of scripture that not only immerses us in the drama of Jacob and his wives, but we're especially grateful for how this passage points us to a better Jacob. That we don't just walk away from the story with a reminder about the consequence of sin or the messiness of humanity, but that we are left with the reminder of the price that your son would pay for his bride, for his church, for us. We thank you that that price has been paid. That Jesus bore the consequence of our sin, paid the ransom for our captive souls, we thank you that your goodness, for your goodness, for your mercy to a sinner like Jacob, to sinners like us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.